Welcome. My name is Yvonne Benninger-Rothschild. I'm the Executive Director of the EICC New York. This podcast is brought to you by the European American Chamber of Commerce, a platform where Europeans and Americans connect to do business. To produce this series, we have asked our members from across Europe and the United States to discuss current events and how they may affect transatlantic business activities. In addition to this recording, I invite you to listen to all of our podcasts. You can find them on our website at eaccny.com right slash podcasts. I hope you will enjoy the insights our members together with my team have put together. And I encourage you to subscribe to the EACC podcast series on your favorite podcast server and to rate and share them with your friends and colleagues. Hello, my name is Paolo Frattini Melendez. I manage member engagement at the European American Chamber of Commerce in New York, and I'm also your host for this Brexit Using series. So in this episode, we will hear from James Knightley and James Smith from ING. James Knightley is the chief international economist in New York. He has more than 20 years of experience at ING, and his main responsibilities currently are North America and the UK. He is heavily involved in Brexit and advises clients the likely macro and market effects. And his colleague, James Smith, is a developed market economist with primary coverage of the UK economy, Brexit, and the Bank of England. So with both Jameses with us here, they will help us understand the shift in the geopolitical landscape post-Brexit and additionally discuss the potential for a trade deal, the impact of the change in the U.S. administration on Brexit, and more. So we are very, very happy to have you here both with us. And with that, I pass it on to you, James Knightley. Great. Thanks very much. Well, 2020 is thankfully nearly at an end. And while there are still clearly massive economic and health issues relating to COVID, uh, the prospect of vaccine, a new US president, and of course, Brexit finally concluding means that we can start to look forward to what opportunities there are going to be for 2021. And in today's podcast, we're going to be discussing a fo- with a focus on Brexit and Biden and what this, what this may hold in store for US, European and, of course, UK relations. So I'm going to throw this open to James uh, to start with. So much has happened over the world in the last four and a half years, but it feels as though we haven't really achieved much uh, surrounding Brexit. So many deadlines have been and gone, uh, but we now supposedly have a really definitive deadline of this December the 31st. So, James, are we going to get a deal? Uh, and what what does this mean? Yeah, I mean, that's not very far away, is it? So time is uh, running out and we've kind of been going round and round in circles with negotiations uh, for about the last month or so. We've kind of heard that a deal has been in the offing and uh, so far it hasn't uh, yet materialised. But of course, it's not just getting a deal at this stage. There's still going to be time for ratification as well before the end of this month. Now, at a pinch, this is still possible. The EU is getting a bit creative about how this ratification process might happen. There's talk about the European Parliament, who kind of has one of the final says on this, potentially meeting as late as the 28th of December to get this voted through. So only a few days before that 31st of December deadline. But that is, at the end of the day, a hard deadline. And that's because Boris Johnson, UK Prime Minister, of course, opted against extending the transition period back in June when he had the opportunity to. And that would have been the easy route to add more time if if they wanted to. So that opportunity is gone. There could be more time added if either side agreed to it. Um, But this is a bit complex, logistically challenging. There'd have to be sort of side agreements. And it's not clear in any case that there's the political, political appetite 
for either side to kind of add more time to the transition period. So December the 31st is kind of make or break. So it's going to come back to, I think, whether Prime Minister Johnson and his administration, whether he actually wants a deal. And um, certainly the political pressures at home are, are building. COVID-19 means this maybe isn't a great time to have big changes in your trade terms with your closest neighbour. I think we'll talk about this a bit more in a bit. Particularly, I guess, when you could argue, uh, you know, with vaccines on the way as well, you know, there's never been a more important time to have essential goods flowing easily through the port. So that's going to be one consideration for the government. But I think and there's also pressure uh, in the polls and also Scotland as well, which we're kind of hearing more and more about. The Scottish National Party is kind of talking about its independence campaign again. And there's kind of a feeling that Brexit could play into that as well as we approach parliamentary elections in Scotland next year. So there's kind of political and economic tides which maybe favour the government getting a deal. But certainly Johnson's under immense pressure from his own Conservative Party. Many of his MPs have been unhappy about COVID-19 measures and are kind of a bit wary about making compromises over a Brexit deal. So that's basically what it all comes down to. And I guess for all the talk of intensified negotiations this week between the UK and the EU and sort of trade-offs in the final stages of talks, I think it really comes down to that single question, does Johnson actually want to deal or not? Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. time will tell. Well, not much time to, time to tell, actually. With that in mind, what do you think the economic implications of this are going to be? Well, I guess in the short term, and I think when we say short term, we kind of mean the next maybe three to six months or so, it's going to be quite different to, to COVID-19. You remember with COVID-19, we had a huge plunge in UK GDP. Actually, the UK was one of the worst affected by the pandemic and the, and the lockdowns earlier this year. We saw a 25% fall in, in GDP. Now, that's probably not going to happen as a result of Brexit, whether there's a deal or not, because it's a very different thing. What we'd really need to see to get a big initial plunge in GDP would be a big fall in consumer spending. And that's probably unlikely initially. It's not a direct consequence of the trade terms changing. And of course, consumer spending is the lion's share of GDP. Having said that, there is, of course, going to be an impact. And I think whether there's a deal or not, it's important to remember the UK is leaving the single market, is leaving the customs union, and that's going to create a lot of new changes for businesses. And there's going to be some initial disruption, I think, as those changes occur, potentially at, including at the ports. So this will be an issue for a range of sectors, including for some that actually haven't been hit too hard by the pandemic. So if you think of agriculture has been kind of able to continue through lockdowns, but would be one of the hardest hit by some of this disruption by tariffs, for example. So it will hit some industries that have kind of been okay during the pandemic, but it will also hit those that have already been hit hard, heavily disrupted. The new trade costs will, will hit them, I think, in in slightly different ways. So contrary to some of the suggestions that COVID-19 and the disruption means that, you know, Brexit is already effectively, um, we've seen the costs already registered. Actually, the change in trade terms will compound the challenge for many businesses. So I think that, as I say, the key thing here is it's true whether or not there's a free trade agreement. Of course, a free trade agreement avoids tariffs. And as I say, that's a particular issue for the, the agriculture firms, for the car makers as well. But you still got a lot of new costs on, on top of that as well. So how does COVID-19 compare in the, the longer term, so beyond the next six months or so? Well, I think it's important to remember that these are kind of permanent costs are coming about as a result of the, the trade changes. So when you compare Brexit to COVID-19 over a few years, as people inevitably will do, maybe over 10 to 15 years, actually potentially a free trade agreement style Brexit may actually be more economically costly than the pandemic, which is ultimately just a, a temporary thing. 
Um, having said all of that, one last point. Actually, if we get a deal, there's a hope that it could come with a lot of, sort of sideline, maybe unilateral measures that either side could take to limit some of that initial disruption. And the hope is that businesses could get a bit of an initial reprieve, perhaps with with more time to adjust. And certainly it would unlock a decision perhaps on financial services equivalents and, and data adequacy as well, two big issues. Thanks, James. Yeah, I noticed you, you use the word hope quite a lot there um, <laughs> as well. What would happen if we don't get a deal? I mean, there's been headlines again suggesting that France is pushing for a no deal Brexit unless the UK really does move. If we end up seeing the UK trade on more trade organisation rules or terms in January, does that end the Brexit saga or is there ultimately a deal that has to be done at some point? Yeah, well, I think the important thing here is not many countries trade exclusively on WTO terms. Usually they have at least some form of agreement. And the UK government has kind of cited Australia as an example of, you know, where the EU doesn't have a relationship, for example. And that's kind of technically true. There's some, I think there's some limited agreements in place between Australia and the EU on sort of mutually recognising each other's standards. But I guess more importantly, the fundamental difference here is Australia is thousands of miles away from the EU, whereas of course the UK isn't. And uh, that is, uh, the EU is still where the UK sends almost half of its exports. So there's a feeling that WO terms are not sustainable. So both sides will need to come back to the negotiating table. And when they do, presumably a lot of the issues we're hearing about at the moment, level playing field, fishing, they'll probably come back again. But having said that, you know, when would talks restart? You know, even even today, as we're recording, there's headlines suggesting that very quickly in the new year, if there's no deal, both sides could come back and, and do a deal. But the politics will ultimately determine all of that. Um, and it could actually take a while for, for both sides to kind of come back to the table. And I guess if there is a deal, the other thing to say is that this is, you know, just a basic platform to, to build upon. You know, we've only had a year of negotiations. What's going to come about if there is an agreement is, is only fairly limited. So I guess it can be built on um, over the next few years. And, and if there is a deal, that will foster a better atmosphere for that to happen. But I guess sticking with the theme and, and passing back over to you now, James, a lot of what we've just been talking about, if there's a deal, if there's not a deal, you know, it's going to matter for UK-US relations as the new presidency begins. Donald Trump and Boris Johnson are kind of regarded as being maybe sort of similar in their outlooks. Trump has said in the past Brexit was great and, you know, he's even gone as far as calling Johnson Britain Trump. But of course, we're in, moving into a new presidency. You know, Boris Johnson as well has changed some of his senior advisers. So with all of that in mind, you know, where do you think the UK or US-UK relationship is heading? And then how does that feed back into the wider US-UK-European relations? Yeah, it's a good question. I think, you know, when we look at it and, you know, you contrast Donald Trump with Joe Biden, you have to say that Joe Biden appears to be much more of an internationalist. We've got that from his past record. And so therefore, there is the hope that the US-European and therefore by extension UK relations do, do improve. But to be honest, I think we have to say that next year, it's all about US domestic policy. That has to be the priority, to be honest. COVID's on the rise once again as we speak. And there is the concern about more containments and measures coming through, and that's going to exert more economic pain uh, on the US. Already, there's still 10 million people fewer in work than there are in February. So I think that, as I say, has to be the focus. Nonetheless, I think there will be a re-engagement with international institutions and allies and trade partners. And I think he will want to have a much stronger relationship with both the European Union and the UK. And I think, you know, areas that 
we will see movement on. I think China is a, is a key part of this. It's going to remain a, a key issue for many, many years. I think having a united front with Europe after four years of division may be more likely to yield concessions that both Europe and the US would like to see from China regarding uh, behavioral trade changes and the way that trade interacts, shall we say. So I think uh, that's how the US-European relations go with China, I think is going to be very important, both militarily, security and economically uh, for the next decade. I think also the US and the UK have historically been pretty aligned on many issues. So this ties in with the Brexit narrative. And I think, you know, the UK leaving the EU has arguably meant that US political interests or viewpoints risk not getting as much of a hearing or isn't it much of an airing within Europe as they previously had done. So, you know, the UK could always have helped, you know, given the similar mindsets on many, many issues to 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 push this sort of a US narrative within Europe to try and see, you know, if we can get uh, movement in those sorts of ways of thinking. Also, from an economic perspective, the single market has been very beneficial for US companies as well. You know, the regulatory, the standardization of processes. So there is regret there that the UK is leaving and that perhaps opens the door for for more regulatory hurdles or differences that uh, US companies have to negotiate. But I think in general, the individual is going to be pretty pragmatic. As you mentioned, you know, the idea that uh, Donald Trump and Boris Johnson got on well. Well, you have to remember back ahead of 2016, Boris Johnson suggested Donald Trump was unfit to be president. So these sorts of things can be typically water under the bridge very, very quickly. And in terms of US specifics surrounding Brexit, uh, I think Joe Biden has said that he's been disappointed by Brexit, but the decision must be respected. And that's that's an obvious statement. But, you know, where he has emphasized the importance is the, the Irish border issue, for example, the US commitment to the Good Friday Agreement, not wanting to see anything that could jeopardize that, such as physical borders on the island of Ireland, is a key story there. And the fact that perhaps Boris Johnson has ditched two of his key advisors is a signal that there is perhaps a greater willingness to to make the concessions necessary because basically there were a couple of the hardliners on the Brexit story. So with that in mind, James, do you think, you know, given this sort of new seemingly attitude from, from Boris Johnson, that we will see a change in thinking on the UK side? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, ever since that US election result a few weeks ago, there's been a big debate over here about whether it pushes the, the UK government closer to, to doing a deal. And I think the general conclusion over the past few weeks is really the impact is at the margin. I guess, for instance, you know, it's it's probably unlikely that any of the US election outcomes would have made a no Brexit deal or no trade deal scenario more likely. Having said that, and given everything you've just said, it's clear that a no deal scenario would probably risk leaving the UK uh, more isolated politically at a time where the US is looking to rebuild its ties with, with Europe. And if we do, in that scenario, get ongoing negotiations between the UK and, and Brussels on a, on a trade deal during 2021, it would be a bit of a distraction from other priorities where maybe the UK and the US actually share some some, some common ground. So think defence or, or climate, for example. And it appears, I guess, no coincidence as well. A couple of weeks ago, the UK has said it all uh, significantly be increasing spending on on both of these areas. So Britain would be keen to leverage the climate summit it's due to hold at the end of 2021 as well to help build uh, US ties. Now, I guess that neatly leads us back to trade. And, you know, in the past, President Trump has said, of course, that he thought a trade deal with the UK, the UK and the US could be done quickly. Is that going to be the case under Biden? <laughs> 
Well, I've got to say that I was pretty sceptical of the idea of a swift US-UK trade deal under Donald Trump. You sign a, you sign a trade deal because you think you're getting something positive from it. And Donald Trump was, of course, particularly noted for his very transactional approach uh, to deals. So the idea that the UK was simply, I mean, yeah, on, the, on the other hand, you know, the, the idea that the UK was simply going to open up its markets for agricultural products and healthcare seems somewhat fanciful. I think Joe Biden would also want to see access for, U, for US products into the UK market. So what does the UK or what is the will, UK's willing to, to, to offer on that? So I think there's still a long, long way to go. And I think, to be blunt, the US, like many, many countries, will want to see what the UK-EU relationship is before it is prepared to do a formal agreement itself. It wants to get see what, what is put into practice, you know, whether we do indeed see these massive queues at British ports that really clog up and lead to supply losses or supermarket queues, etc. So that sort of narrative, I think, is going to be very important. Moreover, of course, we know that Joe Biden, uh, from his, his policy plans, is, is going to be focusing more on some issues that were less in focus under Donald Trump, such as uh, recognition of union labor, for example, the sustainability aspects, the green aspects as well. So I think, as I say, getting those sorts of factors in place, it, it means that there's a lot to negotiate. And, and as I say, uh, I, I remain skeptical that we will see a, a very swift uh, US-UK agreement. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, I guess I'd add from, from the UK's perspective, I think, you know, that appetite for a US trade deal has maybe diminished a bit over the past year or so, because back in the early days of Brexit, after the referendum, there was a big debate about global Britain looking beyond the EU for sort of trade opportunities elsewhere. But I think over the past couple of years, some very specific issues have kind of really come to the fore. So things like the issue of chlorinated chicken, hormone injected beef, uh, the, the role of privatisation in, in the National Health Service in the UK. Those sort of admittedly quite narrow stories have really captured the public's attention. It's been in the newspapers a lot. And I think that means there's very little public appetite, perhaps, to, to push for a US trade deal. I think also there was some initial enthusiasm to get a deal very quickly over the line with the US because the UK was kind of keen to circumvent some of the tariffs that you mentioned President Trump has, has levied over the past few years. Although, of course, you know, given the UK is still effectively part of the EU for these purposes, given it's in the transition period, um, it maybe wouldn't have had much of an impact um, until now anyway. But as you've already explained, James, I guess the, the pivot to warmer EU relations under Biden suggests, you know, worrying about the US imposing tariffs is, is less of a pressing issue in any case. I think the other thing to mention at this point is, would a free trade agreement actually do a great deal for either the US or the UK economy? Because what we often hear, one argument in favour is that we have the internet, Zoom, as we've all found out this year, the cloud. Um, it means services trade has kind of never been easier. And that's obviously true. But at the same time, when you look at academic studies, they show that locality still matters a lot for services trade. And I suppose if you think about it, a lot of services require you to physically go and see a client in person. So I guess the main thing to remember in that regard is free trade agreements actually don't do a great deal for services in any case. And both the US and the UK are heavily service dominated economies. And really, all they do is take each side's kind of rule book on various things and see where they already match up. So I guess neither side necessarily gets too much out of a trade deal anyway, economically. And as I say, set against that more toxic narrative that's kind of been taken on in the UK, rightly or wrongly, in, in the public debate. I think politicians over here have become less and less enthusiastic about a trade deal. Some are actually looking towards other opportunities, perhaps entry into 
um, some of the Trans-Pacific arrangements, although, of course, that will take a number of years to happen. Yeah, it will. So bring this all together, I think what we are suggesting is that 2021 is likely to see an improvement in the US-EU relations under Joe Biden. And it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, US-UK relations get worse, because it was hard to see what the UK actually really got out of a Trump presidency other than perhaps some some nice photo opportunities. So I think in terms of 2021, what we're suggesting is that Joe Biden, the domestic focus is going to be key, but there will be a movement on international relations. A lot of work can be achieved. And I think where we are going to probably see more united uh, views is on that sort of the climate, the sustainability, the recognition of labour within agreements, but also I think the, the movement on China as well. So that's perhaps where the more tangible benefits are likely to be uh, next year. I think the deeper uh, arrangements are probably going to be more of a 2022-2023 story, given the focus on uh, on getting the economy back on track in 2021. Well, thanks very much for that, James. I thought that was really interesting, actually. We shall leave it there. And I guess we will speak again. We'll see how this unfolds over the next uh, next few months. Thanks a lot. Indeed. Thanks, James. Thank you both. That concludes this episode with James Knightley and James Smith from ING. Thank you very much for your thoughts regarding the possibility of a trade deal between the UK and the US, as well as the UK and Europe, and also exploring the geopolitical implications of Brexit. And I would also like to thank our audience. We hope that you enjoyed listening to our program and stay tuned for our next podcast episode where we muse about Brexit. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from the European American Chamber of Commerce, New York. Please remember to subscribe and rate this episode and be sure to check out the complete list of recordings on our website at eaccny.com right slash podcasts. If you have any thoughts or comments about this series, we would love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to us at membership at eaccny.com to learn more about our work, how to get involved and how to join our transatlantic network.